1 Samuel chapter 18. So back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we looked at a story that's familiar to many of us. We looked at the story of David and Goliath, right? And we saw this young man who was an unknown step out in confidence, not confidence in himself, but confidence in his God. Step out on the battlefield to face down this giant who would dare to defy the living God and the army that was his. And we saw God give him great victory and give the army of Israel a great victory that day. And as we come to chapter 18 now, we see the story begin to unfold. We see what life began to look like following this battle. And as we look at chapter 18 today, here's the three things that we're going to take some time and look at. We're going to look at three things that David had. David had the love of the people. David had the envy of the king. And David had the protection of the Almighty. Now look, chapter 18, like so many chapters we have looked at, it's a scotch lengthy. So I'm going to do you a solid and let you stay seated, all right? But would you follow along with me as I read? It says there, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. See, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. But he had departed from Saul. And so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here's my older daughter Merib. I'll give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law of the king? But at the time where Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Mahilothite for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, Well, 
Let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private, and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. So Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price, except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these things, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went, along with his men, and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Church, these are the words of God from the mouth of God that he has given to us because he loves us, and they are true. Let's think for a little bit this morning about the love that David had, the love of the people. Back in 2005, there was a survey conducted, and it was asking this question, who's the greatest American ever? And the top 100 list was all over the board and contained people from all walks of life, like athletes and inventors, presidents, comedians, businessmen, and even a couple of ministers made the cut. And look, if we redid this today, it would no doubt come in a little bit different. But back in 2005, you know who they said the greatest American of all time was? Ronald Reagan. Some of y'all probably don't even know who Ronald Reagan is. Now look, you think whatever you want about that, all right? I'm just giving you the facts. But in that vote, individuals that are Americans were saying, I think Reagan kind of stands out above everybody else for whatever reason. They were saying that as individuals, and we collectively, as a whole nation, were saying, yeah, he, he stands out. And in our text, we see something similar being communicated about David. David stood out. In verses 1 through 5, we see Jonathan, the son of the king, the one who everyone outside looking in would be like, he is the rightful heir to the throne. And we see this man who could have easily viewed David as a threat or an enemy. We see him instead take a different approach and have a different view because he never sees him in that way. He always sees him as his friend and his ally. He loved David. He makes a covenant with David. He even gives him gifts. He gives him not only his weapons and armor, but also his royal robe, which at this point may have been the nicest thing that David had ever owned. In chapters past, and as we move forward, we're going to see Jonathan is a man who loves and fears God. But today we see something else. We learn something new, that he also loved David. He admired David. He respects David. He doesn't love him in some kind of romantic way. But instead, he loves him with this deep and abiding friendship. You know, 
I think Jonathan, it's fair to say, loved David more than David's own brothers did. And whereas King Saul might have had a mindset something like this, better keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Thoughts like that are nowhere in Jonathan's mind. All he sees David as is his friend. Man, have you ever got to enjoy a friendship like that? Have you ever got to have a friendship like the one that David and Jonathan shared? A friendship where you, like these two could say, our souls are knit together. You know, it's sad, but I think that in many ways our culture has actually hindered relationships like this from forming. I don't think it's always intentional, right? But think about how it practically plays out. I want you to put yourself in the mind of an elementary, maybe mid-school age boy or girl, whatever. Mid-school age kid, okay? Think about the fears that they might have if they were considering telling their friend who's the same sex as them, hey, I love you. They might have a fear of being misunderstood by the person they're telling or other people that they may be misunderstood and they might think that those feelings go beyond just friendship. They might have the fear of losing a friend because that person may be like, that's weird. Why would you ever say to me that you love me? What about the fears they might have internally? Like, if I feel some way that I think should be expressed in the word love, like, does that say something about me? Should I be questioning what I'm, what's going on inside of me? Now let's take that same situation and remove it, remove it from the realm of children. What about an adult? Do you think it's fair to say that oftentimes with adults, these exact same fears in our day might be alive and well? That people might be wrestling through these exact same things? Like, would the fears really be any different? Let me ask you, when's the last time that you expressed to one of your friends who is the same sex as you in a serious way, hey, I love you. One of the greatest blessings in my life is I have two men who will look me in the face, call me by name, and assure me of the love that they have for me. Do you have that in your life? Is that a love that you express to your friends? Do you have friends like that that you can express those feelings to? Or do you like to keep your friendships more surface level and superficial? Thinking, if I don't go deep, I won't get hurt. Do you have deep friendships? Do you have a friend like that? You know, if you're a Christian, the answer to that question is yes. It may not always be a friend that you can reach out and touch, but the Bible tells us that if you're a believer, then Jesus is your friend like that. That you can express the love that you feel towards Him. And that He, in His Word, in His actions in your life, is saying it back to you. Hey, Christian, I love you. David Lapine, I love you. Jim Pennington, Kathy Pennington, I love you. And this isn't just from some dude. It's from the creator and sustainer of the universe who gave himself for you to say, hey, I love you and I am your friend. Do you know what it takes to have a true friend and to be a true friend? In part, man, it takes honesty. Matt Chandler says over and over again in different places, to be 99% known is to be unknown altogether. 
being a friend is going to be hard. It's going to take work. It's going to mean exposing yourself. But as Christians, this is something that we are freed to do in a way that unbelievers are not. Because we don't have to try and hide the parts of us that bring us shame. Think about it. What in your life brings you shame? Is it a trauma you experience? Is it a specific sin you you committed a long time ago that just you cannot let go of? Or a sin that continues to be in your life that you just struggle with? Is it a feeling of inadequacy? Is it a flaw? Is it rejection? Is it a failure that you've endured? What brings you shame? As believers, we can be open with those things. We can be open with those things, not just to Jesus, but to our friends who love us. We can share those things with them, knowing that those things in us have been forgiven. And that right now, no matter how we feel, the promise that Jesus made is coming true. When he said, I am making all things new. Even this thing in you that brings you shame. Our text today tells us that David was loved by a friend. But it also tells us something else, that Jonathan wasn't the only one that loved David. As the army comes back from battle, they are greeted by the people. And as the women come out from all the cities, they are celebrating. They're singing and dancing. It's right and good that they should, right? Like God has delivered them from their enemy. It should be a time of celebration that is sweet for everyone. And it is, almost. But not for Saul. Because as the women sing about the thousands that Saul has slain, they sing of the tens of thousands that David has. The word has no doubt traveled throughout the land that this handsome, red-faced kid, he is the one who has slain the giant. He is the one that has saved Israel. He has gone from being unknown by everyone and um, dismissed by his dad and brothers to being the hero of the nation. He has gained the love of a friend. He's gained the love of the people. And he has also gained the love of a woman. Jonathan loved David. The people sing of their love for David. And verse 20 tells us that Saul's daughter, Michael, loves David. See, the children of Saul have a very different view about David than what their father did. God has shown David favor and put love in the hearts of the people for the man that he has chosen. I want you to think about something. Who in your life, who in your life sees you like the people saw David? Meaning like who in your life loves you? Who in your life admires you and respects you? Is it your friend, your spouse, your coworkers, your kids? Is it somebody that works for you? Somebody you work for? Even if you think nobody does, that's probably not true. Whether you know it or not, someone loves you. Someone looks up to you and respects you. So let me ask you, how are you using that influence? Are you using the love that other people have for you to make life easier for yourself? Maybe to boost your own ego? Or do you see the love that other people have for you as a a way that you could benefit them, as a way to show love and care for them, as an opportunity to speak into their lives in ways that others may not be able to? If someone loves you, you probably have the freedom to say things to them that other people don't, and it's going to carry more weight coming from you. No matter what age you are, 
somebody loves you. And that presents you with this question. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to use that love as a way to benefit yourself or to benefit them? You know, as we move forward in the life of David, we're going to see that he doesn't always get it perfect, right? But that on the whole, like he does love and lead the people well. And this is seen in stark contrast to Saul, who is always out for number one. See, Saul, even in this chapter, we see that he would try to use the love that his daughter has for David to his own advantage. He would try to use the love that David even had for his king to try to send David to his death. In the life of David and the life of Saul, we see two very opposite, whoa, we see two very opposite reactions to how to handle the love that people have for us. So I ask you this, who are you more like, Saul or David? As the army returns from battle, the songs ring out about the tens of thousands that David has slain. And here we begin to see something. We begin to see that David also had the envy of the king. You ever been envious of somebody else? Like, envy is just when you want what someone else has. We often hear a definition like this and think material things. But I think that more often than not, we are most envious of the things we can't reach out and touch, right? Like, let me put my own dirty laundry on display for a minute. Whenever I had just graduated high school, there was this dude who was a little bit younger, like a year or two younger than me, who kind of like made his way into our friend group. And uh, I was envious of him, not because of the stuff that he had, but more because of his physical abilities and his captivating personality. So, like, the dude was a good athlete, so pretty much no matter what season it was, you could go and see his great physical abilities put on display and sit anywhere in the crowd and listen to people praise how awesome he was. Um, and it wasn't just that. He was also popular, not just in high school, but also with people that were older. He was the guy who, like, got the attention of all the good-looking girls. Well, just all the girls, right? He got all the attention. He was also the guy that could come in to any room and automatically fit in. He was the guy that was down to do whatever you wanted and somehow like always had the energy just for whatever was on the table for that day. He had what Saul desired. This dude had the love of the crowd and the approval of the crowd. And if I'm honest, I felt at least in a small way towards him like Saul did towards David. Even though I would call this guy my friend, there was times where I was around him, I'd realize, I'm like, Man, I'm angry. And I'm afraid. I'm displeased. And I would stand back at him, and you know what I would stand in? Fearful awe. He was a kid. So was David with Saul, even though this text doesn't specifically tell us, it seems fair to guess Saul was envious that he didn't kill Goliath. He was envious of the love that Israel had for David. He was envious of the fact that his kids were for this other guy. The words that we see here associated with Saul, angry, afraid, displeased, and having fearful awe, you know what these are all describing? These are describing symptoms. 
All of the things in Saul are symptoms of an underlying issue that is rooted deeply in his heart. In Saul's heart is pride and a love of self. And as he sees his pride wounded and the image of another raised up in contrast to his own, that issue, that sickness that is deep inside of him begins to show symptoms. These symptoms can be seen as we look at him. It's like, oh, he wanted the victory for himself. He wanted David's failure. He even refuses to join in the celebration. Could things like that ever be said of you? I want victory even if it comes at the destruction of someone else. If you've ever thought or said something like that, your heart's in the same place and has the same sickness that Saul's did. And that mine has. This idea of symptoms of the heart, I think is something that we understand, right? Like for me, sometimes it'll play out like this. Like I've confessed to you before, like at times I will struggle with finding my pride and identity in my work. Um, And if I ever feel like it's subpar or if someone can point out a flaw in it, I, like Saul, become angry and afraid. I become angry because my idol's attacked. I become afraid because the thing I've looked for, my identity in that's apart from Jesus, is being exposed. You know, the thing with envy is it always involves other people. Think about your life. Whenever you see the success of others, or whenever you see others receiving love that you may want, does it ever make you fearful? or angry or envious like it did Saul? In your life, can you recognize symptoms of a deeper sin issue? I think the two most common are probably fear and anger. What makes you afraid? What makes you angry? Failure, rejection, success of other people, when your weaknesses are exposed maybe? When fear and anger spring up, Do you look to justify those feelings? Do you look to just ignore or suppress them? Or do you see them as symptoms of a deeper issue? You know, whenever we get sick, our bodies send up warning signs, right? They give us symptoms, and it points that, hey, something more serious is happening. When things like fear or anger pop up, Christian, let it be a warning sign to you. There is something deeper going on, and that your heart needs attention. Ask God to expose that deeper sin. Or if, like me at times, like, uh, I know what this is because I continue to struggle in it, be asking God to redeem that thing in you, to take it from you, to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus in that area. You know, we see that even though David had only ever served Saul, been faithful to him and benefited him, that Saul became David's enemy. Like he, it's almost like he chose to be his enemy and that he was so continually but we see that David had something else it was more valuable than the friendship of Jonathan it was more precious to him than the love of his bride it was more necessary than the admonition of the people and more serious than the envy of the king because David had the protection of the almighty look protection is something that we all want right And we all take actions and measures to make ourselves feel protected. We buy health insurance and homeowners insurance to give us the feeling that our healthcare, our bank accounts, and our homes will be protected in case things go south. 
right? We buy firearms and security alarms for our homes and vehicles, and we do it all in the name of protection. And these things are good, and most of the time they're even wise. But there's a level of protection that we all desire that is far beyond the reach of any of these things. As we look at the life of Saul, we see, though, that he was no different than us. He also wanted the same protection. He wanted his throne, his name, his legacy, and his reputation to be protected. He was envious of the human love that David had. But what Saul should have wanted even more than any of those things was the protection that God gave David. So if we think about how David's been displayed so far, like, it's pretty stellar, right? Like, his sin hasn't yet been drug out into the light. Like, he was the guy who his family passed over. Like, he was the guy that they didn't want to go fight the giant. And it was finally like, yeah, dude, I guess. And then he crushes it, right? Like, he's kind of got it going on so far. And he's been presented as a faithful follower of God. And moving forward, yes, David did love and faithfully follow God. But we'll move forward and see he wasn't perfect. He would sin in big public ways. As we look at his life, we see he had patterns that just remained with him. And even though God didn't always protect David from physical, emotional, or mental suffering, he did protect him from something that he didn't protect Saul from. God protected David from having an unrepentant heart. Saul would look to conceal his sin, to downplay his sin, to justify his sin, and at times almost like even pretend to repent for his sin. And while we would see David do some of these same things, here's what's different. David, as we would often see in the Psalms, David would often, always in the end, be broken by his sin and come to God in confession. The most valuable protection that God offered David, that God gave David, isn't seen in his battle against Goliath. It's not seen when he dodges Saul's spear in this chapter. It's not seen in the battle against the 200 Philistines in the end of this chapter or any of the battles and predicaments he'd find himself in moving forward. The most valuable protection that God gave David was to protect his heart from being hardened by sin. Christian, is this the protection that you desire in your life more than anything else? Do you desire for God to protect your heart more than you desire for God to protect your health, your bank account, your home, or even your family? Do you ask God for that protection? Because, man, we are lying to ourselves if we ever think we don't need to. All of us are in danger of having hearts that look like Saul's if we don't have God protecting them. And as we trust God to do that work, we too should be at work protecting our hearts. What do we see? What do we hear? Where do we spend our time? And what's the most practical ways we can protect our hearts? Be involved in Christian community. Be active in prayer and constant in the Word. We're going to have seasons that are harder, where we don't do these things as much as we should, where we struggle and sin more. But in those times, Christian, let me encourage you. Be constant in prayer. Even if your prayers are something like this. God, hold me. God, help me. God, keep me. And God, protect me. Even in the struggles of life, believer, be encouraged. And hold on. Because we are protected by the one that David would call a shield, a fortress, a stronghold, a refuge, and a deliverer.
You know, I think we all want to have good friends, right? If not, you're broken. We all want to have good friends. We all want to be good friends. The truth of the matter is this. Oftentimes, when it comes right down to it, we are more like Saul than we are David and Jonathan. We care more about ourselves. We want what's best for us. We are envious and jealous of other people. The success of other people and the praise that they reserve, the praise they receive oftentimes makes us fearful, envious, and angry. This was the heart of Saul. Times this is the heart of me. Because this was Saul's heart, verse 29 tells us that he was David's enemy continually. And because this is my heart, if you're honest, yours as well. You were born an enemy of God. The gospel offers us good news. That in love, God looked on us and said, I will make you my friends and adopt you as my children. couple comparisons to look at and we'll close. Saul, we see, made David his family only because it would benefit him. But God makes us his family so that we might not receive the just punishment that we deserve. Saul sent David to war to pay the bride price and hope that he might forever be wiped off the face of the earth. But God, he sent his own son to earth so that he might go and do battle with sin and Satan at the cross in order that our enemy might forever be defeated. So that that promise in Genesis 3.15 that I will send one who will crush the head of sin and Satan so that that promise might be fulfilled. God sent his own son to the earth so that for all eternity you and I can live with him in fellowship on the new heavens and the new earth with him. Saul we see, he stood in fearful awe of a man. But Christian, God is calling you and I to stand in fearful awe of Him, the one who created and now sustains all things, the one who came to save a people who at that time were His enemies. This chapter opens by telling us that Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David and that he removed his royal robe so that he might give this gift to David. But Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus emptied himself. He came to earth so that he might give us the gift of eternal life. So that he might give that gift to all those who he himself had knit to us before the foundations of the world were ever laid. He emptied himself so that we might become his friends, his sons and daughters. Jesus is the example of the ultimate friend. If you're not a Christian, my question to you is this. Will you continue to be like Saul, who was relying on himself, who was constantly worried about what everyone else thought of him, who uses other people for his own ends, who was, con who was constantly at war with them? Or will you surrender your life to Christ, be relying on him, and be assured that God the Father now sees you as perfect because of Christ's work and not yours? Will you allow yourself to be assured that you are seen as righteous before the Father, that He is doing all things for your good, and that He wants to give you joy and peace that cannot be taken. If you are a Christian, are you living in light of what Christ has done for you? Do you look to Jesus to see what it means to be a friend? Do you look out for the good of others? And do you rest in the identity that you have been given and that cannot be taken? Let me encourage you as we close. Look to Christ 
for your identity, Christian. Look to Christ for your security. And do so, so that we can go out then and love others the way that Christ has loved us. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you that you, um, and we thank you that you were the example of what perfect love looks like. We pray that um, as we fail one another, that we would be quick to repent, quick to ask forgiveness, and that we would be quick to forgive. God, give us hearts that are more, not even like David's, give us hearts that are more like Jesus. And guard our hearts from being like Saul's. Let us be for others and not against them. Let us want the success of others. And more than anything, give us a desire to see Jesus' name lifted high. And we ask this in His name, for His glory and our good. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.